My name is Phil Stenson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast, we listened to an interview of me that was recorded for the podcast Rhymes Against Humanity with Adam Brodsky. In March, I, uh, last March, I, I was fortunate enough to speak with uh, Phil Stinson. Phil is an old friend of mine, and Phil is an associate professor at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, outside of Toledo, where he curates and maintains uh, the only and the largest police database uh, database on, on uh, uh, arrests of police, police arrests, arrests of policemen. And uh, so he is quoted um, and, and asked for quotes and interviews uh, by all sorts of, of people, um, all sorts of news outlets when, when one of these, when, when shit goes down like this. So Phil has been uh, busier than usual this week, and I had this uh, episode in the can. And so what we're going to do is we're going to play this interview with him, and it's sort of a very wonky uh, deep dive on Phil himself and his process and his um, and his database, and it's important work that he's doing. And this will give you background for all of the things. I'll also link to uh, Phil's Facebook page where he has a, a, a really good um, uh, and comprehensive list of the uh, articles in which he is cited and the video uh, um, uh, interviews, uh, the, the, the media outlets, and Phil's appearances in print uh, or any other media. So anyway, I was uh, very, very lucky to uh, and happy to, to talk with Phil, an old friend of mine, and we had some laughs and we talked about some serious wonk stuff so this should give you some deep background I hope you enjoy it so here is uh, my old friend me and my old friend Phil hello and welcome to rhymes against humanity with uh, Adam Brodsky I am Adam Brodsky this show is about uh, interviewing songwriters about songwriting well we're not doing that uh, so we're doing something different today we're talking with my old friend uh, dr. Philip Stinson he's every time anybody my friends becomes a doctor I, I'm, I'm very impressed it's, it's it's hard work you got to write a dissertation and shit. well so. I'm, I'm not the kind of doctor that helps people though that guy's a, that, those are glorified mechanics if you're talking about those guys right well, I, I guess so and not only that I would beg to differ because we're gonna talk a little bit about your about your amazing database and 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 your work uh, uh, with criminal justice system and and police uh, arrests and things like that. Uh, so we've got a lot to cover. But uh, uh, so welcome to Rhymes Against Humanity, people, uh, uh, and and welcome, Phil. Thanks for taking the time. We are on uh, Bowling Green's uh, Ohio Bowling Green, Ohio Bowling Green State University, which is in Ohio, not Kentucky. That's the wrong Bowling Green. That is right. Western Kentucky University is in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Bowling Green State University is in lovely Bowling Green, Ohio, which yes. is where we are today. Yes, it is. Uh, uh, my old friend, my old roommate, Butch Ross, went to went to uh, Western Kentucky. That he got his master's in folklore there from there. So I've been I've been to both. I've been to the Corvette factory, and uh, and I've been to the Bob Evans sausage I'm, here. Yeah, <laughs> I believe we actually have uh, in our pop culture department. We have a popular culture department. We actually have one or two professors who have PhDs in folklore. Believe it or not. Awesome, excellent. So I like to tell tell Butch that uh, you know since he is a folklorist. Uh, an official folklorist. Whenever he writes a shitty folk song, it's an indictment of the whole educational system. Whenever I write a shitty folk song, I'm just a schmuck with a bachelor's degree. There you go. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Phil, we're gonna we're gonna talk about about your database and how you got here. We will start with. I read. I was doing all my research last night, reading all the all the articles, and you're 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 kind of a a, a macher, kind of a kind of kind of a big deal. Um, uh, at least in this field, like like the the places, the people who quote you are legitimate. Like just a, a real short list shows that you have been you have been interviewed and quoted 
NPR, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The LA Times, Atlas Obscura, which is one of my favorite publications. I'd never heard of them until they called me. Yeah, they were there because I listened to all the Slate podcasts, the Slate White People podcasts, and the Slate Political Gab Fest. Uh, one of their guys, uh, not John Dickerson, the, the other one, maybe David Plotz, went off and started his own company uh, called Atlas Obscura, and where he does cool work like like this, and he, and, he, and he talked to you. And most importantly, you were on 538. You were interviewed by uh, someone, I forget her name, who, who did the interview. Uh, well, to him, Carl Balick. Okay, see, I forgot his name. Right, <laughs> and Carl used to be the numbers guy at the Wall Street Journal, so he's somebody whose columns I've read for, for many years, so uh, Carl's somebody I, I, I talk to fairly regularly now, but that piece in 538 has gotten a lot of traction, and uh, it was about a year ago, and I still get uh, a lot of very favorable feedback, and every once in a while I get some hate mail, uh, but I don't know if it's the result of 538 or not. I... I... I don't doubt it. I mean, like, I, I, I take 538 as, as the gospel. I mean, they, they like, because they, they understand how numbers work, and, and, and numbers are, are, in a large part, what you're dealing with with this database. But before we get to the, to the, uh, the police arrest database, um, we will start with, with how, how you got here to Bowling Green. You were, uh, among other things, you were, you were a cop and then a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, like when I met you, this this is my favorite part is I met you probably in our uh, ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven. Uh, yeah. Mia Johnson introduced you to me and said, "I'd like you to meet my lawyer." And I was like, "Holy shit, Mia has a lawyer!" That's it was I was the I was like, "I know a musician friend who has a lawyer. This is good for her." Well, actually, I don't know if you remember this, but I think one of our first interactions, I sent you a cease and desist letter. Yes, you did. <laughs> but what was it for? Uh, I think that you, uh, there was an artist who was signed to a, a, a record label that, that I was a part owner of and a lawyer at, and uh, you had uh, uh, that... Uh, uh, Permanent lady, records. Yeah, that young lady appeared on uh, your record without getting it cleared. And, uh, <laughs> she was under contract with us. And uh, what I did, though, was it really wasn't a serious thing. We sent you that cease and desist letter, and, and we timed it in a way so that you would get the letter right around the time that we would be disappearing for Christmas and New Year's, and you wouldn't be able to get in touch with anybody, so you'd have to stew for a little while. So it was all very well planned out. <laughs> it, was, it was beautiful. I actually, I took it as a badge of honor, because I, re I remember, I was like, that's right, I'm, I have a cease and desist order. That, that, means, that means somebody noticed. That's right. I think we took notice. <laughs> I have gotten since, I've gotten two more of those in my life. So um, I, I believe that was a record of yours called Dork? Yes, that was the, yeah, the, uh, the, the Dork record. And wait, so was it... Who, was it was it uh, uh, was it Susan and Steph that were under who was I'm trying oh, to Mia. It was Mia. It was Mia. Oh, because Mia was yeah. under contract, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, right. And she appeared on the Dork record. Right. Yeah, she sang backgrounds on on Diesel Dyke. <laughs> right. Exactly. She played on uh, uh, Susan and Steph's records, but I actually liked their music, so I had no problem. With that. <laughs> <laughs> I respect your litigiousness. <laughs> so you so you were a lawyer, and then you went to well, let's talk about you were you were a, you were a cop. What made you want to become a cop? Well, uh, I don't know. It was something that I that I thought would be interesting. Actually, if you go back a little bit further, I uh, um, was in a boarding school as a as a teenager, okay, and uh, decided that I really didn't enjoy that. So I dropped out of tenth grade. I think my my parents are probably still a little bit pissed off about that, but things have worked out okay over the years. Um, Wait, did you go? Did, so you had to get a GED at some point I to did. be a doctor? And you know what? Oh well, PhD. But 
uh, I guess ultimately, I, you know, I, I found it actually, and I've been wanting to put it on the wall here in my office, and I haven't done that yet. But the reason I'd like to do that is that just really sort of confuses people, and I think it's, uh, I think it's kind of cool actually. So yeah, so um, my first job actually as a tenth grade dropout was working as a messenger at a law firm on K Street in Washington D.C. Oh that wow! Was, that was before we had fax machines, so every law firm had had messengers. Uh, who would, uh, you know, run things around town to different clients and different government agencies. And it was, you know, it was a different time. You could, you could literally, and I did this, would drive up to the, uh, the steps on the east side of the Capitol, to the Senate side of the, mm -hmm. the Capitol there, and just literally drive a, a car right up to the, to the, the foot of the steps there and, uh, you know, just yell to a Capitol police officer, hey, I got to run into the public document room. And they'd say, okay, just leave your keys over the visor. We'll move it if we need to. <laughs> So, times have changed. So, so that was my first job. Back and then, in the Andrew Johnson administration. Yeah, that was that was in the the early 1980s. So it was in the in the Reagan administration. So things have changed there. You can't you can't get a car anywhere near there now. So uh, then uh, uh, while I was in college, I started out at Northern Virginia Community College and then George Mason University, which is where my bachelor's degree is from. And while I was in college, I worked as a dispatcher uh, with the Arlington County Police Department in Virginia, and then as an auxiliary police officer there. Wait, what, what's an auxiliary police officer? It's uh, basically a volunteer police officer. So in my spare time, uh, while I wasn't in class or working, I uh, worked. Uh, so we did things like traffic control and stuff like that. And it was sort of an experience for me just to sort of get a feel for law enforcement. But you don't, have to, too you, deep don't have to into go, it. you don't have to go to police academy for that? Uh, we had training, but not a full academy. And then later I went to the New Hampshire State Police Academy when I went up to New Hampshire. Okay. But I, the reason, one of the reasons I worked in Arlington was they had a great education leave policy. And you could get... Uh, without any questions at all, 160 hours of paid education leave a year, and we were on rotating shifts, so that would go a long way. And if I could get the police chief and the county manager to sign off on the paperwork, it was unlimited paid educational leave. And I didn't have a problem with uh, going and getting their signatures. Nobody else would do it, but I did it. So basically, you know, I, I went to college while I was on the payroll for Arlington, and many days I was sitting in class, uh, you know, when I should have been at work, and and that's how I got my bachelor's degree. In the long run, that's got to chap their ass thinking the, about the database you're putting together now. Well, perhaps. <laughs> so then, uh, when I graduated from uh, George Mason, I just turned 21, and um, I had this uh, I had this sort of romantic notion that it would be kind of cool to work in a in a small town or a small city in northern New England in New Hampshire. My family had vacationed in northern New Hampshire every summer when I was a kid. And I wanted to go to New Hampshire um, to, to be a police officer. You know, I had this idea of a white picket fence and, and all that. Mm -hmm. and, and I will say that my, uh, my then-girlfriend uh, lived in uh, southern New Hampshire. And uh, I moved Where in there. southern New Hampshire? She was in Durham. Okay. And uh, I ended up becoming a police officer in Dover, New Hampshire, and went to the State Police Academy, which is kind of a cool thing in New Hampshire. All full-time police officers go to the State Police Academy, okay. which is really good. They have excellent training. So um, now we're in the mid-'80s now? That would be 1986 through okay. about 1988, and uh, I remember the night that I decided to leave New Hampshire. I'd been up there for a few years, and I had made the decision uh, that I really wanted to start thinking about doing something else, and I had uh, left the Dover Police Department, and briefly I was working for the Alton Police Department up on Lake Winnipesaukee, and I would do things like break up fights in ice shanties and deal with guys who would drink too much, and their pickup trucks would go through the ice and that kind of thing, and, and spent the winter uh, up there on, on Alton Bay. And I remember one night uh, I was going to an accident of some type and driving uh, in a snowstorm. And uh, they had blue strobes on the, uh, 
the police car I was driving. It was, a, it was an old uh, Jeep Wagoneer. And um, it turns out that in a driving snow that the strobes will reflect off the snow and just shoots back in your eyes. Oh. So by the time I got to this accident, I had already decided, you know, enough of this bullshit. Uh, I'm going to law school. So I called my, my then wife uh, and said, you know, I think it's a good time to go back to D.C. and go to law school. So, so I did. So I went, to, uh, went back to D.C., went to law school, and then ultimately ended up, uh, as you know, in the Philadelphia area. And I practiced law in Philadelphia for about 10 years until I professionally and personally imploded and had to put my life back together and decided that I'd live a lot longer if I was not a litigator in Philadelphia. <laughs> and that I wanted to be a college professor and I uh, ended up uh, getting a master's at Westchester and then ultimately a uh, PhD in criminology at IUP at Indiana University. And what was your dissertation on? Well, it was on this, this the, what we're going to talk about today, it was on my research uh, having to do with, with police crime, so crime committed by sworn law enforcement officers. And that was something that I had gotten interested in a long time ago. I remember back when I worked in uh, Arlington, Virginia, that uh, there were several police officers who got in trouble, and there were always strange stories. And I remember one, one guy who... Uh, uh, he, he, was, he was up at Marymount College in the middle of the night and he was working his shift and he put in this emergency call that he was being attacked or something like that and everybody went up there real quick and there was nobody attacking him and uh, seemed kind of odd and then a few days later in the middle of the night uh, there was another call and somehow he ends up getting run over by another police officer and went over the hood of their car and flying down the street. It was a crazy thing and it turned out that uh, he was stealing cocaine from the evidence room and a few other things he was stealing and he was uh, really hyped up and um, you know he ended up getting charged criminally which is really unusual in a place like Arlington, Virginia. It's a very good police department. You really don't have that kind of stuff going on too much. So I was interested in that and then later on uh, a friend of mine who was with Arlington County uh, got arrested for forging a prosecutor's signature on some documents, some court papers to uh, to dismiss some traffic tickets, I think, for a friend, that kind of thing. So I had that in the back of my mind. And then uh, when I'd been up in New Hampshire, I really did see some crazy shit. And I was really surprised at the things I saw working in the city of Dover about how horribly some people were treated by the police in that town. And there were a few specific police officers who were way over the top in the way that they uh, really abused and assaulted people and the way that they treated people and just saw some really crazy stuff with some 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 crime committed by officers uh, while they were on duty in the middle of the night. Now, that being said, most of the people I worked with in law enforcement were, were good people. Most people who work in law enforcement don't steal. Most people who work in law enforcement don't ever get arrested. Uh, but I saw some stuff that really was you know, eye-opening for me, and it was something that really changed me. And it actually changed the type of law school I went to because I really started thinking a little bit differently. And and uh, one thing that's been a driving force in my life all these years is the notion of due process. It's really important to me that people are treated fairly. So both substantive and procedural due process to me, to this day, are very important things. And that that sort of started to drive uh, my interest in law school. So I decided to go to well, frankly, was sort of an anti-law school. I went to uh, the District of Columbia School of Law, which originally had been Antioch uh, Law School that was affiliated with Antioch College out here in Ohio. Okay. Uh, and the, the Antioch Law School was an offshoot from the Urban Law Institute at uh, George Washington University back in the early 1970s. Uh, Edgar Kahn and his wife, Jean Camper Kahn, started the Antioch Law School. And now it's the University of the District of Columbia. And when I went there, it was a school that was in turmoil. It was, uh, uh, you know, they had just lost their accreditation when they changed over from Antioch to D.C. Law. They were getting their accreditation back. 
Uh, it was a clinical law school. It was a uh, chaotic experience. But what does clinical law school mean? Well, we worked in, uh, in, in, not all of our classes were in the classroom, so we worked in legal clinics. So I'll give you a few examples. I worked in three legal clinics as a law student. I worked in the Government Accountability Project, which is still there in D.C. to this day. When I worked there, their offices were up on Capitol Hill. They're now on K Street, I noticed recently. But the Government Accountability Project uh, represents government whistleblowers, and it's a really neat organization. And uh, that, I would say, is an organization that's on the left. I also worked when I was at law school for a libertarian litigation group and think tank called the Center for Individual Rights. So all this confused my peers because they couldn't quite figure me out politically, which was part of my goal. Uh, <laughs> but I also worked in a juvenile uh, law clinic where uh, I, I represented uh, kids who had been charged in the delinquency system. So in the second year of law school in the District of Columbia and in other states, a law student in a legal clinic in other words, working under the supervision of a clinical law professor who's an attorney can practice law. So I remember, I remember the first uh, person I ever represented in a court. It was in the District of Columbia Superior Court, and it was a kid. His name was Evaye, and he had stolen a car. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time, it was very difficult under D.C. law to prove that somebody had stolen a car because you had to prove that they actually had the intent of permanently depriving the owner of the car. So you end up charging them with unauthorized use of an automobile instead because you could just say, well, it was a joyride. A joyride is not stealing a car. Not under D.C. law, at least not at that time, because a joyride, you don't have the intent of permanently depriving the owner of the car. You're not keeping it. You're just using it for the evening. Right. That kind of thing. So, so that was the first person I ever represented was this... Uh, 14 or 15 year old boy named Ivaye. He was from the Anacostia area, lived in public housing in, in DC. And uh, it was interesting because, you know, law students, uh, they will uh, um, spend a lot of time working on a case. So we actually worked real hard to get that kid a good deal. He wasn't adjudicated delinquent, he was diverted out. And hopefully he's had a productive life in the many years since then. So I also worked in a uh, legislative drafting clinic where we oh, learned wow. how to write law. I remember uh, one of the professors was uh, David Clark, who had most recently, before working there as a professor, was the the chairman of the D.C. Uh, Council, whatever that position is called. Um, so that was when Marion Barry was mayor, the right. first go-around, uh, when Marion Barry was mayor, which was that time, 18, or not 18, yeah, 19, <laughs> 1989 to 1992 is when I was in law school in D.C., and it was, it was an interesting time. So I worked in the legislative drafting clinic, and I worked with a group, I was a third-year law student at that point, and I had second-year law students and some second-semester first-year law students working under me, and our goal was to create, to draft a bill that would bring Congress into compliance with the civil rights laws that they had exempted themselves from. Um, they exempted themselves from civil rights laws, such yeah. as? Well, uh, workplace uh, harassment laws. Because there's a separation of powers argument that you can't have the executive branch with power over the legislative branch. So this was a problem because if you had a member of Congress who was sexually harassing a staff member, there was no real procedure that was viable that they could avail themselves of. The, Isn't playing grab ass a constitutional right? Uh, uh, the, the Article 2, Section Tush? Well, some, some people would make that argument, I suppose. So, so we, we drafted this bill, and uh, I remember we went up to some some meetings and the very first meeting we went to on Capitol Hill it was in a uh, uh, it was in a senator's office and I made the pitch as to what we had drafted and we wanted the senator's help <laughs> and uh, we, we were literally escorted out of the building 
Do you remember which senator? No. Uh, well, he's uh, he was he was from Ohio. I remember that, <laughs> and uh, he, he's no longer alive. And uh, <laughs> ran into him a number of years later, and there's a whole story with that as well. But but in any event, that um, with Howard Metzenbaum. Howard Metzenbaum. So uh, we were literally escorted out of the not only the senator's offices, <laughs> but out of the Senate office building where we were. And um, told that that you know you all are crazy basically. And but I am proud to say that several years later the law passes the Congressional Accountability Act of 1995 in a in a somewhat different version. But but we got the ball rolling on that. So that was nice. kind of a cool experience. But it was it was interesting. The law school at that time was down on 13th Street, the 700 block of 13th Street Northwest just a few blocks from the White House. And the kind of people that I went to law school with, they would do things like, you know, we'd have a break between classes and they'd say, hey, Phil, you want to go over to the White House? We're going to chain ourselves to the White House fence to protest the first Gulf War. We got a few hours before torts. You want to go <laughs> chain yourself to the fence at the White House? And uh, I'd always say, well, you know, I, I, I really don't know that I've got time to do that this <laughs> afternoon, but, but thank you for asking. But uh, occasionally I would go as a legal observer, uh, as classmates would, um, a, um, you know, express their First Amendment rights to protest things, and especially the golf Ah, I remember the First Amendment. Time. Yeah. That was a good so, one. I miss it. So kind of a cool place to go to law school because, you know, we were, we were uh, it was a renegade law school at that time. It was, um, it was, uh, it was an interesting place. Uh, the, the, the people that I met there, uh, you know, some of them are still very close friends to this day. And, and people that really had a huge impact on my life. So, so that was important to me. And, and then I ended up uh, just sort of by accident in the Philadelphia area where I practiced law for about a 10 years or so. And then when I decided I wanted to get a Ph.D. in criminology, I needed to get a master's degree on the way to that. And I did that at Westchester because I was living in the Philadelphia area at the time. So I earned a master's in criminal justice because... The Ph.D. programs I was applying to really didn't care that I had a law degree. Uh, they wanted to see a master's. Okay. Um, so that was actually a good opportunity, though, because I got a really high GPA as a, a grad student in the master's program, and ultimately, you know, that got me full funding as a doctoral student uh, later on. So the issue came up, um, it was the fall of 2004 in an ethics class, whether police officers get arrested very often, and, and it was something that uh, my classmates didn't seem to think happened very often, and, and it was probably 20 people in the class, and about half of the people in the class were probably mid-career, uh, a lot of them were in law enforcement, uh, some of them worked for the courts, and they just didn't think it happened much. And, and I thought, well, this is kind of silly. I think that I think the cops get in trouble quite often. That's been my experience, just watching people I know um, and, uh, you know, paying attention to what's going on. I think it happens with some, some regularity. So uh, initially it was to win a bet. I think it was a pint of ale, uh, something like that. <laughs> uh, I think I won the bet a long time ago at this point. So what I decided to do was, uh, remember this is 2004, and Google News was a new thing, the Google News page. Yeah. So that's the page where news stories are aggregated from all sorts of different news sources. That was a new thing, and that was something that came out of 9-11 in 2001 where someone at Google realized there's no place you can go on the Internet and see news aggregated in one place real time to see what's going on. Right. And that was the whole idea behind Google News. There was also something that was fairly new at the time called Google Alerts. And you can set up Google Alerts, which are automated searches where you put in the search terms. You have to have a Gmail account, and you set it up with your search terms, various Google Alerts, and just let it rip. And what we were interested, I, I always say we, but it was just me at that point. Now that I've got a research staff, I can say we, but... but but it was me back then. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. So what I was interested in, though, was not 
searches that would constantly crawl the Google search engine, but the Google News search engine. So in other words, the search engine that drives traffic to the Google News page is what I was interested in searching so that we could get new articles that would meet our search terms. And then you get an email with a, with a link and I could look at it to see if it was a hit or not. So within a few days, came up with about 40 officers who had been arrested that month. And for whatever reason, I just kept printing out these articles and uh, uh, left Westchester and about a year into my PhD program at IUP was still printing these articles out and had you know this huge box of printouts of news articles and decided to do a pilot study to see can I make a dissertation out of this in other words what can you do with these news articles at that time I really wasn't sure how I could make this a quantitative uh, research project with statistical analyses and that kind of thing but uh, did a pilot study of uh, 18 months of arrest cases that I looked at and ultimately decided that that would be my dissertation topic. So what I did with the dissertation was looked at arrest cases where sworn law enforcement officers from around the country had been arrested uh, or charged in some way for a crime during the years 2005 through 2007. And what we came up with, what I came up with, uh, was 2,119 cases for my dissertation. Okay. Uh, so over 2,000 cases and I had 109 quantitative variables and was able to run various... A quantitative variable would be? A number. A number. So, I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, I joke that I deal with, uh, you know, I'm an expert in nominal level data. So, I deal with, you know, things like zeros and ones. So, if we have a, a, a question, for example, was the officer convicted? Or was the officer on duty or off duty? That kind of thing. They're basically coded as zeros and ones. So a zero yes would no. be no and a one would be yes. So a lot of the variables I have are nominal variables where you have a, a dichotomous variable, a binary variable where it's zero or one. So we, I have a lot of things like that. But I had 109 variables and it was things like uh, the uh, what type of agency, how many years of service at the time of their arrest, what the officer's age was, uh, the number of sworn employees in the agency, full-time, part-time, were they arrested by their agency that employed them, some other agency, uh, what were the crimes they were arrested for, some of the demographic information on victims, what were the employment outcomes uh, in terms of being suspended, fired, uh, resigned, retired, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and then the criminal case disposition. So were they convicted or not? And, and that's what I did for my dissertation. And uh, finished that up in the uh, summer of 2009 and finished my dissertation, successfully defended it right around the time I had accepted a job as a tenure-track assistant professor here at Bowling Green State University. Um, Where you now have tenure, you told me? I do have tenure. Mazel and, tov. Well, thank you. I, uh, I don't know why you're wearing pants. That would be the well, first thing I would get rid of. I tell you what, I have not uh, fully explored the possibilities <laughs> of what I can get away with now that I have tenure because I'm still trying to keep, uh, uh, you know, I've mellowed a bit, I suppose. I don't want to get in this trouble as much as I used to. So, uh, so yep. So I now have tenure, and I'm an associate professor. Was recently tenured and promoted. So when I came to Bowling Green in 2009, uh, I had heard that there was some sort of digital imaging database that they have here at at Bowling Green, and I went to my department chair, and he says, "I know exactly what you're talking about. That's not for you. Move along." So. Of course, I didn't take that answer as a final answer <laughs> and uh, talked to somebody in the Information Technology Services office uh, here at the university a few weeks later. Um, turns out that was an office that was um, 
sort of a renegade office at the time, the digital imaging office, and uh, I'm not sure how closely they were supervised, so they said, sure, we'll help you out and set this up. And uh, it wasn't until several years later before somebody realized I never had the proper approvals initially. Um, but we got set up with that, and they were very helpful. By the way, Eventually, once we got grant money, um, you know, the university has become incredibly supportive in, in helping me build new parts onto this uh, database and things like that. Yeah, you were so, showing me. It's so we, pretty comprehensive. Yeah, and we now obviously have approval from the university. So, um, so initially, the idea was just to archive the data I had from my dissertation, and okay. then I was still collecting new information, and ultimately decided, well, I'm going to keep, keep doing this and keep collecting data. And over the last six or seven years, we... We, we've been doing a variety of different studies, papers that have been published, and adding new variables. We now have about 270 quantitative variables that we track these cases. So ultimately, we code the cases on these variables. We have to wait a few years after an arrest because we want to see what happens to the, the person. Do they, get, do they get fired? Do they keep their job? Uh, do they get convicted? If so, what's the sentence? Do they, do they uh, get the conviction overturned on appeal? You know, all these kinds of things we, we look at. So um, in... 2011, I applied for a federal grant with the National Institute of Justice at the U.S. Department of Justice, and uh, we were awarded a grant, a large grant, and, and that provided money to hire uh, graduate students as research assistants. So as part of that federal grant, we uh, coded another four years of cases, so 2008, 9, 10, and 11 arrest cases. So now we had seven years of data. We went back to the original cases I had coded and, and coded on all those supplemental variables that we added. And uh, that took several years. We're building different parts onto our database. It had originally been an object-oriented data relational database. We've combined the two, so it's an object-relational database, if that means anything to anybody. Not to me, no. Yeah, well, it'll mean something to somebody, I suppose. Yep. Uh, we have a... You probably uh, understand what a pivot table is. Yeah. So we have... Uh, a, uh, a video database. We have thousands of videos from like the evening news, so live at five at Beaumont, Texas. You know, if it's a lead story where an officer gets arrested, uh, you know, we got videos like that. We've Janis got Joplin's hometown. I did not know that. No, I think I'm wrong about that. It's it's Babe Dietrichson's hometown. Janis Joplin is maybe no. I'm getting sidetracked, but the point is. <laughs> yeah. So I'll um, edit that out. Nobody needs to hear. Alrighty. Yeah. Um, I've got other stories about Beaumont, but we'll, we should edit those out as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, I drove through it once. <clears throat> it is Janis Joplin. Yeah. Yeah. It's not my favorite place. Oh, really? No. <laughs> Troubles? Now, which brings me to another point. Are you, uh, are you afraid of getting, a, getting pulled over <clears throat> for a broken taillight and such? <laughs> you know, it's been suggested to me by some friends that I uh, should be careful in that regard. But you know what? Nobody knows who I am. Nobody pays any attention. I really don't think... Uh, uh, wait till I put out the podcast, sir. Yeah. Well, we'll see. But I don't, you know, I I, uh, I tend to uh, obey the law and mind my own business these days. So, so no, I'm not worried about things like that. I do, I do get a good bit of hate mail, things like that. But the fan mail, I suppose, outweighs it. And when I say that, I mean, you know what's the weirdest thing that's happened in the last year? I now get... About once a week, I'll get an email from a high school student from somewhere across the country wanting to talk to me about some research paper or presentation they're doing. And that's to me, is very strange. I, I don't know how that happened, but I guess that's a good thing. Um, and I'm always willing to talk to high school students, um, and I'm interested in you know seeing what they're, what they're studying, what they're researching, those types of things. So that's kind of a weird one. So that's happened a lot recently. Um, so... During the last seven or so years I've been here at Bowling Green, I've, I've been working with some colleagues, and, and some papers have gotten published on my own. 
as sole authored papers, but but had about 13 or 14 journal articles published, different studies that we've done. So we've done studies on things like uh, off-duty crime by police officers, okay. uh, drunk driving by police officers. I read your piece on the... Uh, um the school, the S, what are they called, SROs? SROs, school resource officers. Yeah. So a few years ago, we did a paper. I did that with a colleague named Adam Watkins, who has done a lot of research on school resource officers, and I had data on school resource officers who had been arrested. So I was interested, you know, what is it about the cases where school resource officers get arrested? So with that one, very quickly, what we found was their cases are a little bit different than other police officers and that they're more likely to be sex-related cases, although a lot of cops who get arrested are arrested for sex-related crimes. It seems to be a thing of opportunity where you've got officers who are working in schools that are not trained as educators, you, you know, they're trained as cops, and they end up getting in trouble with some sort of a sexual impropriety with a 15-year-old or 16-year-old, that kind of thing. So we've done um, studies on uh, the criminal misuse of tasers, uh, which is an interesting paper. The last few years I've been working on uh, police sexual misconduct and I've had several papers published on on uh, sex-related crimes by officers. And for the last two years or so, and frankly it was since the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, what people have been interested in, and the phone ringing off the hook with the media, is, is data that we have on police shootings. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't even realize that we had good data initially on police shootings. And I got a call, it was August of 2014, I think, from a young man who was working at Talking Points Memo, uh, and they're in the D.C. area. Yeah. And the question was, do you have any data on police shootings? How many how many times officers are criminally charged for shooting and killing somebody? And my first answer was, no, everybody wants that type of data. It doesn't exist. And then I gave him a talk about how no government agencies collect that type of thing. And about two days later, I realized that one of the supplemental variables that we had been working on adding and uh, had a grad student who just had this, this sheet of about 15 supplemental variables. And he spent a year going back through all the cases we'd previously coded and coding for these 15 or so variables. And one of them had to do with guns, whether the case involved a gun in any way, mm -hmm. whether pointed, shoot, uh, shooting of a gun, whatever. So we were able to ultimately you know, take that gun variable and uh, figure out what we actually had in our database on police shootings that we didn't have any way of pulling out of the database prior to that. So I called up the reporter at Talking Points Memo a few days later and said, you know what, I can help you with that. We can figure this out. And the, and the issue was that they wanted to know, and it was what I've been getting a lot of calls about, was how many officers have been charged with murder or manslaughter for shooting and killing somebody on, while the officer's on duty. Mm -hmm. And so it's something I looked into a lot, and it's something that uh, last year, in April of 2015, worked on a project, actually worked on it for about six months, but it was published in April uh, with the Washington Post, where we looked at the prior decade of officer-involved shootings where officers were charged with murder and manslaughter from on-duty shootings where they had shot and killed somebody. So if we go back to my original point at the beginning of 2005, if we take the decade 2005 through the end of 2014, 47 officers from around the country have been charged with murder or manslaughter for shooting and killing somebody while the officer was on duty. Just 47. 47 over that decade. And that's, so that's an average of 4.7 a year, under 5 a year. And the best estimate is that the police shoot and kill uh, about 1,100 people a year. On-duty police officers shoot and kill about 1,100 people a year in this country. And most of those cases, an officer is found to be justified. So under Tennessee versus Garner, which is the Supreme Court standard for this, uh, if an officer has a 
reasonable apprehension of an eminent threat of serious injury or bodily injury being imposed against the officer or somebody else, the officer is justified in using deadly force to stop that threat. So if they say that phrase on the stand, game over. Yeah, and that's what happens a lot, actually. So it's very few cases where shootings, on-duty shootings are found to not be legally justified. So under five a year over that decade. So then what we saw in 2015, though, was something different, where we had 18 officers who were charged. Suddenly we've got a, a larger number. So people want me to say, well, there's a spike, there's a surge, there's an uptick. But, you know, it's hard to do that because we're dealing with outliers to begin with. We're dealing with a very small sample, and it could be some sort of an anomaly as to why there were more last year. But, but, but something's going on there. And by the way, as of now, we're coming up in mid-March 2016, four officers have been charged with uh, murder or manslaughter for shooting and killing somebody while they were on duty so far this year. So we reached the yearly quota. Well, no, we're on track to the number that we had last year. Okay. Frankly, we're, we're right where we would unfortunately expect to be. So, so we are seeing more cases where officers are charged over the last few years, and it's since Ferguson, and, and it, it's complicated as to the reasons why that's the case. But in great part, I can tell you, it's because of videos. So sure. we've got four types of videos that come into play in these cases. We've got dash cam videos, which have been around a good long time now. We've got body cam videos, the body-worn cameras that police officers in some places are wearing now. We've got surveillance videos, and then we've got everybody out there's got a smartphone, so we've got citizen videographers. And the problem with the citizen videographers is that they tend to not start recording a video until they realize something's not quite right here. So we don't catch the few minutes leading up to the incident. Right. So, so sometimes there are missing pieces here. But, but what's happening, by the way, 11 out of 18 of those cases where officers were arrested last year for murder or manslaughter, on-duty shootings, uh, involve videos, 11 out of 18. Sure. So we're seeing, we are seeing more of that. And, and what's happening here is that in several of the cases, it's clear that the initial statements and reports made by the officer who was the shooter were not true, that they were false statements, that the narrative is not what the officer said it was. And, and up until recently, the police have exclusively owned the narrative in these kinds of cases. They determine what the facts are. They write it up however they want to write it up. And now what we're seeing is that there's there's another side there, and now that the police no longer solely own the narrative, uh, we're getting closer to the truth in some of these cases. So that's why we're seeing more of these cases, unfortunately, with officers being charged. And I say unfortunately because all of these shootings are unfortunate, but it really raises the question and gets me wondering, out of those 1,000 to 1,100 times a year where officers shoot and kill someone while they're on duty, how many of those are bad shootings? How many of those are really murder cases where the officers are not getting charged? And, and that's, that's the great you know, unknown in all of this. So it's something that the public has really taken an interest in over the last few years. And you alluded to earlier about the media attention that, that my research has gotten, which has been very, very interesting and, and very odd in, in many ways. But it's all around the shootings is where most of this is, has come up. Yeah. Um, I overheard one of my research assistants recently telling someone, they were asking, well, why is he on the news? And the, the student said, well, they don't have anybody else to call. If they did have somebody else to call, they would. And I thought, well, that's, 
It's true, actually, <laughs> I suppose. So, uh, uh, she and you were doing this before it was cool, though. I mean, like, you know, you've been at this for over a decade. Oh, yeah. But this is our 12th year of uh, collecting data on this and studying this. So, so uh, have a new grant from a, a private foundation, and hopefully we'll have that funding for, for several years. And what it's allowed me to do uh, this year is to uh, hire as research assistants uh, students, most of whom had actually been working for me as a volunteer for the last year or two, um, and it's nice to be able to put them on payroll and they can work more hours and they're already trained, uh, that type of thing. So, so hope to build on that. We've got a lot of work that we're doing now. We've got all sorts of different things going on. You know, once we find out about these cases through the, the news media, typically, we ultimately want to get the court records when we can. Okay. So I'll give you the example of... When you can, aren't they public? Well, I'll give you the example of Pennsylvania, where, where you live. There's a unified judicial system in Pennsylvania where everything is in one system and automated. So it's very easy in Pennsylvania to go online, and if you know the county and the court where somebody was uh, charged and prosecuted, you can get the court docket sheets yeah. at, at no cost. And by the way, I did read an article recently where uh, the Commonwealth has figured out that a lot of people are using this resource in Pennsylvania and they're talking about uh, putting up a paywall, which I hope they don't do because I think it's important that this type of uh, information be out there. So in, in Pennsylvania, I had a student who spent, uh, not this year, but the last academic year, 2014-15, spent the whole year on getting the criminal docket sheets from almost 600 arrest cases of police officers from Pennsylvania over the prior decade. Um, and if we wait too long to get the docket sheets, they may be gone if the case was expunged. If we get them too soon, we don't know the case outcomes. Uh, and once we get them, if it's a case we've already coded, then we've got to go back and change our data set as to various variables. So if an officer has now been convicted or their conviction has been overturned or they were sentenced and we didn't know that before, those kinds of things. But in other states, it's not so easy. In some states, you have to go into county level systems online to get this. Mm -hmm. Other states, they simply don't have it available to get online. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult. So we've got students who work uh, in different areas. I've got a student who uh, worked on getting South Carolina docket sheets. Uh, I mentioned the student doing Virginia. A student, well, I mentioned the student with Pennsylvania. Then we had a student working on Virginia, Maryland, uh, D.C. cases, and we're branching out to other places across the country. But what happens there is it becomes a two-year project because it takes one year of a student working about six to ten hours a week getting these docket sheets. They spend the whole academic year working on that. And then we spend the next year going through them all, making sure they really are related to the case that's in our database, and updating our data set and various things that we need to go through and make sure that we have all the information from that and adding those documents to our database. So it becomes a really long project, and, and we've got a lot of states to go. So we try to get the court records. Some places, like the federal system, we're able to actually get the court pleadings so we can get the uh, arrest warrant, we can get the criminal complaint, we can get the sentencing paperwork. Some places we can get that type of stuff, and it's just a, it's a gold mine for us, and, and it, uh, it's something that we try to do when we, we can do that, and hopefully we try to do it in states where we can get that for free. So we work on that. We've got students who are specifically getting state-specific court records to supplement the news articles and news videos that we have. Do your research assistants ever feel like they're being stonewalled by the county when, they, when they're asking for these records? Well, we don't contact people on the phone. We typically get through internet sources. Um, you know, it's interesting, when we applied for the federal grant uh, back in 2011, $10,000 of that grant was specifically to access materials in the 
a federal court system called PACER, the Public Access to Courts Electronic Record System. Okay. And it used to be eight cents a page view. It's now ten cents a page view, and you could actually get a a waiver, but you've got to go to each federal district court. There are ninety four of them around the country, and get a judge to sign a waiver. And we talked to people at the National Institute of Justice, which is part of the Office of Justice Programs at the Department of Justice, and they said, you know what? We'd rather just give you the grant money to pay for it and not tell people at each of these courts what it is you're gathering. Oh, right. So okay. it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So on many levels, we've gotten feedback, you know, let's just do our work quietly. Uh, we don't want to be misinterpreted or anything like that. So, you, so you've been at this now over a decade. Yep. Um, so you, uh, do you ever, you know, you're, you're just collecting data, but do you ever think holistically? Like, what, if, you were, if you could snap your fingers, what are some things you would change? Like, how can you improve, how can you make this system better? The criminal justice system? Yeah. Well, in terms of how to keep Cops from getting in trouble, those kinds of things. Is that what you mean? <laughs> oh, no, I'm trying to trying to how to keep cops from abusing their power. How to how to how to keep uh, well, uh, innocent people from being shot. How to, you know how well, to. Well, that's there, there's a number of things. If if we look at and not just shootings, but if we look at you know Philly style corruption, yeah. drug related corruption, and there have been problems going back many decades in in places like Philadelphia with the police department. The first thing that comes to mind with, for example, the Philadelphia Police Department, is get rid of permanent shifts because what you have in Philadelphia is that in many parts of the city in the police department you have the same officers working the midnight shift with the same other officers for weeks for months for years on end and people become complacent they become sloppy they uh, there are no checks and balances in place they let their guard down and that's where corruption seems to to uh, breed. So there, there are problems with that. So shifts are an interesting thing. I have a friend, by the way, who's a, I don't know what he does now, but he at the time was a sergeant with a, uh, a police department in suburban Philadelphia. And he told me, he was in the master's program I was in at Westchester at the time, and he told me that everybody in his agency that worked the midnight shift had either renovated a house or built a house with stolen building materials that they had acquired, if you will, while they were on the job. In other words, they load up the trunk of the police car with stolen materials. Now, right. I really don't think that officers do that in every place across the country, but it was interesting that this guy's telling me this, that that was a common thing in their agency. And when you have permanent shifts and people are always working the midnight shift with the same people, I think that that's one thing. Another thing that comes to mind is, and this is a big one recently, is implicit bias training, where you've got to have training for officers to realize their unconscious biases. And, and th this comes into play a lot with race relations, and that things that you know, may not seem out of line to me as a uh, you know, middle-aged white guy uh, come across very differently to other people who uh, you know, have different races, different cultural backgrounds, things like that. So one of the things that's, that there's a lot going on right now in law enforcement agencies, and we really don't know how effective this is going to be, but implicit bias training is a big thing that some agencies across the country are looking into. I think that civilian oversight is important. Okay. And civilian oversight and, and transparency in agencies. I think it's important, you, you know, you've had problems, for example, in, in Philadelphia over the years where they put together various boards of civilians that oversee the police departments, and, and then you find that they're stonewalled and they don't get access to certain things and they really don't have power to do these types of things. But it's important that there be civilian oversight, both formally and informally. So informally, what I mean by that is people ought to take it upon themselves to go on ride-alongs if they can, occasionally with a police officer, to, to see what their jobs are like and to... 
you know, actually go out on the street with a police officer. Another thing that, that uh, could be done that, that very few people ever do is go sit in a criminal courtroom on a day when you don't have to be there. So you're not there as a witness, you're not there as a victim, you're not there as a defendant, you're not there as a defense attorney, a prosecutor, a police officer, a juror. You're just observing. And I think we need a lot more of that. We need people to observe the criminal courts uh, and, and different components of the criminal justice system. And people don't do that. People don't pay attention to what's going on in these various uh, different places. And, and it's what Amy Bach calls ordinary injustices. And she has a book called Ordinary Injustice where these types of things fester for years and years because nobody's paying attention in the lower courts as to mm -hmm. what's going on. And a lot of that uh, goes back to police departments as well. I'll give you an example of a, an ordinary injustice. It somehow came up uh, about two or three years ago here in Ohio that every arrest warrant that had been issued by the Toledo Municipal Court was not supported by probable cause. In other words, there was no probable cause affidavit uh, attached to the warrant application that they just filled out the warrant form, gave it to a deputy clerk in the courthouse who signed the warrant, and they had never been trained that they were supposed to make a determination that there was probable cause for the arrest warrant. So should all of those cases should be thrown out because of the Fourth Amendment? Well, um, yeah, they should be thrown out probably. And, and what happened was it came up in a, it actually came up in a case before the Ohio Supreme Court. And in that case, the court cautioned that any active warrants from that court need to be verified, that you can't trust the, uh, do not act on an arrest warrant from that court until you determine that there was actually a, uh, a probable cause affidavit and then it was supported by probable cause when it was issued. And and apparently that problem happened in a few other places in Ohio as well. But it was it went on for like 13 years, which is really shocking. And how is it that nobody noticed that? How is yeah. it no defense attorney noticed it? How is it that no student interning in the courthouse or with the prosecutor's office noticed it? How come no street cop noticed it? Nobody noticed it. And, and I think the reason nobody noticed it is because nobody goes to trial. Uh, you know, people go to court, they're charged with something, they waive the preliminary hearing. That happens in Pennsylvania all the time. Uh, they end up pleading guilty, and really no, nobody's ever checked anything. There's no checks and balances anymore. So that's how that kind of thing could actually happen. So people paying more attention to not only the uh, law enforcement function, police agencies, law enforcement agencies, but other aspects of the criminal justice system as well in the courts. So I think those are types of things that, that could be done that could bring about uh, big change. There's some interesting things in my research that's uh, come up in terms of findings that have led me to wonder, you know, what can we do with this information to improve the quality of life for police officers, their families, their agencies, to try to reduce the problems in terms of corruption, misconduct, yeah. crime. And here's, here's an interesting finding. One of the things I found was that contrary to prior research that would suggest in the prior research that if an officer is going to get in trouble, they're going to do so in the first three to five years on the job. They're going to get out of the academy, they'll be with a field training officer, they'll get out on their own, and then they'll get in trouble. And by the time they've been there five to seven years, they're either out of a job because of their misconduct or they're just going to write it out. They're going to calm down and write out their career. That's what the prior research would suggest. Although prior research, frankly, hasn't had longitudinal data like we have. So one of the advantages I have is that we can approximate longitudinal data and look at officers over the life course of their career by uh, literally uh, graphing some of this data. And what we found was that over 
of the cases where an officer is arrested occur within three years of retirement eligibility. So it's completely different than what prior research would suggest. In other words, late in an officer's career seems to be a, a time where they're likely to get in trouble. So there are less of them that have been working that long, but over 20% of the cases involved officers who were close to retirement, within three years of retirement eligibility. Yeah, I would not have suspected that at all. Yeah, so we see these jumps. When we graph it, we see these jumps where at 18 to 20 years, 23 to 25, 28 to 30, 33 to 35 years. And those are all trigger marks. People tend to retire in law enforcement agencies if they still have defined benefit, you know, pensions after some places 20 years or 25, 30, 35 years. And is something about preparing for retirement, something about the identity of a police officer that's so closely tied to their badge and a gun, um, there's something going on there. And I don't know what it is, but I'd like to you know, study that more because something's going on there. I'm not sure what it is. I don't know if it's appropriate counseling. Uh, you know, why is it happening? Um, we've, we've got a number of hypotheses as to what could be going on there. Is it because officers in some places are working more overtime to get their salary in their last few years up so that their pensions are higher, um, where they'd be on the street more working overtime and have more contact with the right. public? We don't, we don't think it's that. Uh, we're not sure what's going on, but it, but it, there's something going on there. So that, that's one of the, the findings that we've had that, that um, you know, it, it's interesting because it's not just criminal justice research. It's not research as a criminologist. Some, in some ways, it's public health research. You know, you're looking at these issues. You can look at it from a variety of different ways. That What's going on there? Are other researchers contacting you a lot to ask for pieces of your data? Yeah, I get a lot of calls from researchers who are wanting access to our data set. Mm -hmm. um, under the federal grant from the National Institute of Justice, one of the things we were required to do was deposit a version of our data set. So not the raw data, not the digital imaging database, but the, basically the, the master spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. We're required to deposit it with something called the National Archives of Criminal Justice Data. Okay. Um, so does, does that end up in the Library of Congress? No, it ends up at a place called the Inner University Consortium for Social and Political Research, oh. which is it's actually in Ann Arbor, Michigan, about an hour north okay. from where you and I are sitting today. Um, and they have the contract to, to run the National Archives of Criminal Justice data, which is part of ICSPR. Um, and the Justice Department pays for this to be run. So ultimately, any federal funded research from the Justice Department, the data set should be made available through the National Archives of Criminal Justice data. And depending on uh, a number of factors, it, it may actually be available to download for free uh, from the internet. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've deposited a version of our data set from the, the seven years of coded cases, 6,724 cases involving 5,545 officers employed by over 2,500 agencies in over 1,200 counties and independent cities across the country. We've deposited that over a year ago now, and I, I think one of the reasons it has not been made public yet is there's an ongoing question that they're working on up in Ann Arbor with people in uh, the Justice Department in D.C. as to what restrictions are going to get put on this database because, frankly, any publicly available database through them, you got to strip out the personal identifiers, and there are so many ways that you could actually look at our data set in this spreadsheet and figure out who the individuals right, sure. are. So they're trying to figure out how can they strip out certain variables 
and yet still be a usable data set? Or are they going to make it a restricted data set where a researcher would actually have to sign a, a confidentiality agreement? Or even a more strict way of uh, restricting it would be that they'd actually have to go to a safe room in Ann Arbor and use the data set there. And that, that happens with a few. And, and I don't know what's going to happen here. It may well be publicly available. And uh, I hope so, actually. These are all these are all uh, arrests. These are all, this is, you, you gather these things with, with Google Alerts. Why, why does the information have to be kept private? Well, we've aggregated it in a way that nobody else has. And, and because of that, with ethics requirements, both here at the university, uh, federal law, and as a condition of our grant, we actually treat this, even though it's publicly available documents originally that we rely on, we treat this as if it were human subjects research. In other words, there are oh, okay. ethical constraints as to as to what can be uh, made available with personal identifiers. So that that's the problem there. So because that data set is not available in any usable way yet, I do get calls from researchers who, who are wanting you know, access to the data set. I've worked with a few people on, on limited versions of the data set to, to, you know, they called me up and said, you know, they're interested in doing this or that. And I said, well, you know what, I'd be willing to give you, you know, this limited version of the data set if this is a project we could work on together. Yeah. Ultimately, though, other people are going to be able to take that data set and, and do whatever they want with it. And that's a good thing because the whole reason for that is other people need to be able to replicate our findings because if, for some reason, a social scientist's findings were not able to be replicated with their own data set, that suggests they're cooking the books. Right that there's some shenanigans going on there. So it's really important that, you know, these types of data sets be made available to other people. It's important that this data set be available not only to replicate our findings, but so that other researchers, maybe with other statistical abilities, would be able to uh, run different types of analyses or maybe right. combine it with some other data set to do some research in a way that I hadn't even thought of. And it's also something that would be available to students, so grad students, even undergrad students. So if somebody's working on a, a PhD dissertation or a master's thesis, um, they would be able to have access to it. So nice. You might be the rare guy that writes a dissertation, which this is what your dissertation was on, and you write one that actually gets read by someone. My dissertation would be a horrible thing to read because, uh, <laughs> you know, going back and looking at it now, it's... Um, it's like any other dissertation. It's in retrospect that it, it's poorly written, you know, and it, it could written have been by a guy better. that needed more sleep. Yeah, but here's the thing: as part of our federal grant, we are required to write a final technical report, uh, which is no longer a requirement with NIJ grants. The last two years or so, they've only had requirements that you get peer-reviewed journal articles published. So we've gotten seven or eight journal articles published that are peer-reviewed in you know scholarly journals with the data we worked on with the grant, and I've had about 14 overall with this data. So with the, going through the process of writing a uh, final technical report, it ended up becoming a 670-page document. I think I wrote my dissertation again, so now it's it's a much better document now. Nice. Uh, yeah. You should go back to the defense committee, get, gather them all together yeah. for a beer and say, listen, I know you guys but said here's, okay. Here's a better version. Here's a better version. So that actually, that final technical report, the 670-page document, which it's frankly very dense as well, I think is going to be made publicly available by the Justice Department within the next few weeks. It's been going through a whole process the last two years, actually, of various different approvals and editing and things like that. Um, but I believe it's going to be made available online um, and uh, and I know there's some other things that the Justice Department's been working on that will be put out around the same time. We actually last summer recorded a video uh, that's going to be on NIJ's YouTube channel. I didn't know they had a YouTube oh, channel, all right. but uh, we recorded that in D.C. And one of the points we make in that video 
and I think it's an important point, is that, you know, this isn't anti-policing research. A lot of people have an opinion that for some reason I'm anti-policing or I'm trying to embarrass law enforcement, that I've got a, an axe to grind. And, and, you know, I don't look at it that way at all. I, I look at it as uh, needed research because there are no publicly available statistics. The, the data is not there in any usable way for people to find. But it's also, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're looking at ways of trying to improve the quality of life of people who work in law enforcement and reduce the incidence and prevalence of, of crime by police officers and law enforcement officers. So, so I think that that's an important thing, and that, that's a point that, that we make in that video. What do you think about uh, uh, hiring processes? It seems like, uh, from, from my opinion of having I've done no nudes. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. There was a case, it's actually a case that, that I learned about when I was in grad school that really really pushed me in the direction of doing this research. I was a police chief and he had been hired in the late 1980s as a, as a police officer and worked his way up to chief. And ultimately, he killed his estranged in front of their children in a parking lot. Horrible case. And in the wake of his death, in the months after his death, there was a lot of fallout and there were... Uh, two investigations, one state and one federal, into what was going on. And several things came out. One of them was that before Brame was ever hired as a rookie police officer, as a young man, um, he had gone through psychological training. So I don't know if it was, I remember when I was uh, applying for the, the job in New Hampshire, for example, I took the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic uh, personality inventory. It was a 500 and some question test. Is that where they say that you're an extrovert uh I don't remember. It was okay. a long time ago. Um, but I know that there are instruments like that that are still used by law enforcement agencies to try to weed out people that don't have the right personality, uh, skill set, attitude, whatever, right. uh, to be a police officer. And it turns out that before Brain was hired, a police psychologist, in reviewing his um, test results, said, do not hire this guy. This guy's trouble, he, he does not have the personality to be a police officer. They went and got a second opinion from another psychologist who made the same finding. Okay. And in the years since then, I've become aware of a number of cases in my research where it's come out that an officer who later got in trouble, in, sometimes in very horrific ways, like Brame's uh, murder-suicide, um, it comes out that there were questions about their psychological profile, their suitability to be a police officer before they were even hired. And they're hired anyway. Right. And that just shocks me. That, that Few things shock me anymore, but that really, really surprises me that when you have that information that is just ignored, you hire who you want to hire. By the way, uh, ignoring information is something that goes on in police departments a lot. Something that the Justice Department has required with a number of agencies where they've entered into consent decrees to stop violating people's federally protected civil rights, one of the things they put in place in a number of places, 40-some around the country now, are uh, systems, they're early warning systems. With the early warning systems, the early intervention systems, they're basically tickler systems where all sorts of data is collected. Uh, sick leave data, citizen complaint data, uh, traffic accident data, broken equipment, missing equipment, all sorts of different things. They collect data in these early warning systems, and some of them are computerized systems now. And the idea is to flag problem officers and officers who are at risk of becoming problem officers. Okay. And what 
the limited research that's out there on these early warning, these early intervention systems shows is that even with these systems, the data are simply ignored. They ignore the flags. Well, you can't have change if they're just going to ignore the, the, the flags. Yeah. yeah, what can it's, you do? And, and that gets to the heart of the problem. If you're going to hire people when you know that they're really not suitable to be a police officer, if you're going to ignore the flags years later when you know somebody's at risk of, of getting in trouble or, or doing something that they shouldn't be doing, it, you know, it's a problem. Uh, I'll tell you a story. About a year and a half ago, I was in my research lab and uh, working with a student and then uh, paperwork came across my desk where an officer had been arrested and we knew from our database that this was the third arrest of this officer in the last six months. They still hadn't been fired yet but I said, sort of an off-head comment to the student, I said somebody needs to take care of this guy this guy's at risk of hurting himself. This is somebody whose life is unraveling. Mm -hmm. You can see from the types of things he's getting arrested for. Um, something bad's going to happen here. And within a week, other paperwork came across my desk that that officer who had just been arrested for the third time killed himself. And the student said to me, why didn't you do something? And I said, well, you know, we got to think about that. We're here as researchers. We're not working in these agencies. That's not our job. You know, that was just a comment based on my own experience working with this data. The old prime but, directive. Yeah, but, but you know, it was something that um, I think the student was really taken back that, you know, how did he know that? And, well, you know, it's, it's easy when you're sitting in the, you know, the comfort of an air-conditioned research lab and you've got the benefit of a great database and, and, a, and a, you know, a whole research group to, to look at something like that and say, hey, this is somebody who they need to check. Yeah. So we have those kinds of questions. We have questions about, and we don't know much about this yet, but post-traumatic stress syndrome. So if you've got, we, we've seen a number of times where officers have gotten in trouble after they returned from active duty uh, in a war zone, so in Iraq or Afghanistan over the last decade. And here's the problem. So you've got an officer who's a, who's a police officer, goes to the police academy. Let's say they're college educated or whatever. Maybe not, but they go to the police academy, they work as a police officer for several years and they're a reservist or a national guardsman mm -hmm. and then they're deployed on active duty to northern Iraq in a war zone in an active war and when their deployments over six months a year later they come back and they're right back on the street as a police officer and what we found in a number of cases is if the officers are damaged goods because what happens the rules of engagement in a combat situation as a member of the US military in a war zone are completely different right. than what's acceptable on the streets of Seattle or Philadelphia or Bowling Green, Ohio as a police officer. So their judgment becomes off because you know we've had cases where officers shoot out the tires of vehicles that are driving away from them and you can't do that. You know a car full, of, we had one in New Mexico where it was a, a mother with her kids in a minivan and she was out of control by the way um, and giving the officers a hard time but an officer ends up trying to shoot out the tires. He very easily could have killed one of those kids. Yeah. And it's just, and I don't know if that officer, by the way, uh, had uh, combat experience in the military, but it, it raises questions for me. Uh, and we've seen this a number of times where it's clear that you can't just return from the military and go right back into your civilian law enforcement job without, uh, I don't know what, retraining, hitting the reset button, doing something, because your most recent and best training is what's going to take over. So if you've had really good training with the Marine Corps, uh, but you had 
years before that had mediocre training with a local police academy, you're going to act in a, in a street encounter the way that you were trained best, which is with the Marine Corps, and you may make a judgment call on use of force or something like that that's completely inappropriate and, um, and totally unjustified under the law in this country, whereas in a combat situation it would have been allowed. Uh, so we're seeing this kind of uh, problem with judgment. We're seeing problems with post-traumatic stress syndrome. And, and, you know, a lot of this takes it way out of my area of expertise. But, but we're able to look at the data that we have and realize, you know, there's some, there's some huge problems and huge issues out there that need to be looked at a lot further. So that's another example of how, you know, I really don't think of this as anti-law enforcement, but uh, research that it's, it's, it's exploratory in many ways. You know, we're, we're still at the very, you know, beginning of trying to understand a lot of these things that are going on. And what we do know is that, crime by police officers is, is multifaceted and it's very complex. All right. Well, I, uh, I, I want to thank you. Before we go, I want to talk about what's really important. Are you watching The People versus O.J. Simpson? I have not yet oh, watched sir. it. I have not yet watched oh. it. I haven't even watched Making a Murderer yet. Oh, okay. Well, though, obviously, you've got you've got your queue lined up when right, uh, when, I do. when when you when the when the semester is over and after the finals and the kid and things lighten up for you. Well, I've actually designed a course that I'm teaching in our honors college next fall based on uh, making a murder. So I've got a lot. Okay. Of, I got a lot to do to get ready for the fall. All right. But um. But anyway, the people versus OJ. People versus OJ Simpson is it's amazing for all of the right and all of the wrong reasons. I mean, it's it's. It's hilarious, and and you know I watched that trial. I, uh, uh, um, you know we all did, you know, uh, and we were fascinated by it, and to see it portrayed again and bringing it back, and and it's so it's 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 so it's it's both over the top and spot on. But the thing that I think is interesting is that um, the 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 angle that you're seeing it through is you know it was it was written uh, the, the screenplay was written now, and so even though it was 20 years ago, the the, the focus of the whole thing a lot more so than than in real time was the the issue of Los Angeles policing and uh, uh, and the racism inherent in the Los Angeles police system and and, and that is that is a that is a major uh, focus of the people versus OJ Simpson that that wasn't necessarily as the thing played out in real time wasn't something that was that was particularly uh, focused on by all the by Geraldo and all that and all that stuff so I totally recommend it it is a it is Check a it guilty out. pleasure and it takes me back to a time when and first of all the people were so decent. Like the fact, I'm 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 watching it. I'm thinking this actually happened. The most American thing that ever America to America, a football star slash movie star killed his wife and the police and and racism. Like it has it has every piece well, of America in it. If OJ ever gets out of prison, he's going to be looking for the real killer still. So. <laughs> That's true. He'll be still looking for the real killer. And of course, David Schwimmer as uh, as Robert. Card oh, and this it has the Kardashians in it. Because. Uh, uh, their father was yeah. uh, one of the lawyers on the defense team. Yeah, he's he Swimmer plays him and he says he he calls him Juice all the time. It's hilarious. And then he and then he takes his kids out. He takes the girls out and he, and and uh, this one scene where they get a table even though there's a big line because he's on TV and he says, "Girls, there's more important things than being famous." It's hilarious. So when you get a chance, The People versus O.J. Simpson, I recommend it to you, Doctor. For, Phil, please call me Phil. Phil, so, I'm proud of your work. Well, thank you. So uh, I tell you, though, as a criminal justice professor, O.J. for many years was the gift that kept on giving because oh, yeah. he just it just never stopped with O.J. for many years. So oh. do, do you remember, by the way, about 15 years ago, I showed up at a gig of yours in San Diego? You were at that gig in San Diego. Do you remember that? I, I'm sorry. I don't remember you being there. Well, I, I have that effect on people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was, um, I think that a girl stole a poster that night. She asked really? me if she could have one, and I said she could buy one, and then I saw her walking out with it tucked in her pants. 
Yeah, <laughs> I, that's it, it. It is vaguely coming back. I, I uh, um, she was pretty. You were not. So, so I remember her, even though she stole from me. <laughs> you remember individual young ladies from a gig fifteen years ago. <laughs> it's that kind of career. Well, that's why you don't remember me, I suppose. <laughs> but I was there. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I hope I didn't suck too bad. Yeah, it was. It was yeah, all right. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah. I got through it. I think that was when you were doing your fifty gig, fifty states and fifty. Oh, that's why it was a gigs. blur. Yeah. Yeah. No, because the San Diego, the California show was in uh la that 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 tour oh no this this was different then yeah it could have been could have been the yeah but but, but i was i was touring the whole country uh, uh three or four times a year then so yeah it's so down in ocean beach in sandy what were you doing in no, no no this wasn't in ocean beach this was down uh, past hillcrest um i don't even know what the neighborhood's called mission something um yeah it's a blur dude yeah, yeah. so what yeah. were you doing in san diego well at the time um uh, I don't remember what I was doing that trip. My son has a rare disease, cystinosis, and he's doing well now. He's in his mid-20s. Uh, but at the time, we spent a lot of time at uh, UCSD La Jolla at the medical school there where he had physicians who were researchers who studied this disease. So we spent a lot of time there and at NIH in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. So we made many, many trips to, okay. to uh, San Diego uh, for uh, you know my son's medical treatment. So that's probably why I was there that trip. Okay. Well, I appreciate you coming out to the show. Yeah. Sorry if I, if I was a jerk. <laughs> well, thanks for coming to Bowling Green, Ohio. This was fun. This was super fun. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. This was fantastically uh, uh, informative, and I think the work you're doing is super-duper important. So I, I hope uh, my, my listeners will appreciate it because I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, oh, thank you. You're welcome to come anytime, and I hope you can get maybe a minute or two's useful. Uh, oh, hell yeah. Well, we got we got like lots that. of good stuff. So, yeah. So, so that this has been... Uh, not, not doctor. If you want to call him doctor, you can. But this is Phil Stinson, uh, uh, the tenured associate professor at Bowling Green University, teaching criminology. Bowling Green State. Bowling University. Green State University. What, what's the mascot here? What are you guys? Uh, Frida and Freddie. They're Falcons. The Falcons. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, uh, oh, so I thought you meant the actual mascot. You, you, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the Bowling Green Falcons. The Bowling Green Falcons. Come on out. They. Uh, they they didn't make the the NCAA, but maybe maybe they'll because they lost to Akron last night. That's true. Okay, but maybe they'll be invited to the NIT as we said to find out who's the 65th best team in the United States. We shall see. <laughs> so thank you for for being with us. This has been Rhymes Against Humanity with Adam Brodsky and Phil Stinson, and we are clear. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Lost podcast. This interview was recorded for the Rhymes Against Humanity with Adam Brodsky podcast and is used here with permission of Adam Brodsky. Support for the Police Integrity Lost podcast was provided by the Wallace Action Fund of Tides Foundation on the recommendation of Mr. Randall Wallace. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash policeintegritylost.